if we all tried to give a little bit of help to someone else, mm. we'd live a lot better, you know, we'd have a lot better life. And a very warm welcome to this special edition of the Bastards Inquiry, where we are discussing the gambling review. And joining me on this podcast is Conservative Councillor Andrew Woodman. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome, Lee. Yeah. And joining me also tonight is a, a special guest. Very pleased to have him on because we don't get enough of balanced debate, I feel, on this subject. And I'm very, very pleased to welcome Nick Phillips, founder of The Gambling Guardian. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Cheers. And what I want this discussion to be about is literally all our views in a, in a cordial way, which we never seem to get on the internet or type in 180 characters or whatever it is on Twitter. And so, Nick, I mean, could you give our listeners some background into yourself, how you found yourself in this position, basically, as, as a founder of Gambling Guardian? Yeah, so in a nutshell, I'm a recovering gambling addict. I'd started in my teens I later, after leaving the army where my gambling exacerbated. I got into, which is, I think, relevant to this. I, I got heavily involved in sports betting, in football and horse racing. And then obviously while I was in the Bucky's Greyhounds and things like that. So I had a very active kind of 15 years following horse racing and betting heavy on that. But like I said, Unfortunately, the, the gambling got a grip of me a bit too much. And then when the online world came on, I started gambling heavily online as well, which led to about two bankruptcies, two failed suicide attempts and loss of marriage. That's kind of standard things that come with gamma addiction, sadly. And then after the suicide attempt in 2017 and beginning the chance in life, I, I started studying psychology and counselling. Uh, as a degree and then I'd, I had to postpone that because of COVID I wasn't finding it was remote learning very good and I decided to start up the Gambling Guardian which again it's it's a company that raises awareness around gamma-related harms but I specifically work in a niche area as as being in the military the area that we look to work in and deliver sort of awareness sessions with the sort of serving personnel and with the veterans community and yes yeah, so we just we work with them uh, raising awareness. Yeah Wow, it's some some story that. What time frame are we talking about here, Nick? When did gambling take hold of you? What sort of time frame is it? A long time ago? Is it is it recently since internet or? No, very early. So I mean, I, I got involved in fruit machines as a teenager, late late in my teens, type of thing, and then. So it looks like I had a bit of an interest in, in sort of gambling. So later in my teens, I was playing a lot of snooker. My snooker hall was one of the active sports I play now, still play snooker. But then I joined the army and then didn't have a very good time in the army. And again, the gambling was was a escapism for me a little bit, I look back. But when I left the army in my 20s, I, I, I played football as well. So got involved with my local club and started putting football coupons on and things like that, the standard stuff that comes with playing football with the boys. And then got involved, involved in the horse racing I'll be honest with you like you said it's one of the things I've always said in my I've, I've told my story a few times and it's the one side of the game I miss the gambling um unfortunately I can't control my gambling but I I miss the horse racing side of it I think it's a fantastic day out I think the sport is a it's a great sport but unfortunately because of the amount of betting that's involved with that kind of sport I can't go to horse racing days out and, and they were great days out just have great fun but and they had good social events but it, it got just got yeah so it, we'd, we'd say in mid 90s really 
he took off. And then obviously back in that time, there was no internet, internet really. Then it was betting shops, going to the tracks. Chepstow was the one I'm based in South Wales. So as you can tell, it's a Chepstow, a bath. I was, I was always, um, I used to enjoy the jumps more, than, especially from a betting perspective as well. I used to enjoy the jump season more than the flat season. Being in Cheltenham quite a few times, Aintree. I also, because I used to do coach driving, I used to, do, I used to volunteer for the coach trips as a, as a bus driver, coach driver, for the uh, horse racing events, to make sure I was at them so I could have a bet. So, yeah, I've done Ascot and Ladies' Day and Aintree. And, yeah, I've done, I've done quite a few courses up and down the country over the years. Ah, I mean, it, it, like you say, it's what strikes me with this case in, in particular is that the vast majority of cases, well, so I'm led to believe, I mean, I, I haven't got statistical data to back this up, but I'm led to believe that it's more casino uh, style games that, that can, can get hold of people a bit more. But obviously, back in the day before internet, you know, we it was mainly, you got the fruit machines in the snooker clubs, the fruit machines started appearing in the betting shops. And you'd got, like say, horse racing, football coupons. So it's, it's a real interesting scenario because I've not heard of that many cases regarding sports betting. And it's obviously you're a case in point that any forms of gambling really are harmful to a certain sector of British society. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I think you said I, I did get involved. I mean, in the last 10 years, I got involved in internet betting. I used to go in the, obviously still go in the betting shops and play in the FOBTs and get my mis- make myself mixed up and lost a lot of money in them as well. So <clears throat> I'm in the internet betting. I wasn't so much into the um, casino-style games, really. I didn't used to play... But again, I used to play roulette on FOBTs, but I then get into it online as well. But I didn't used to play the slots a lot. I, I came away from that. I said the younger days and the fruit machines were that. But and the sports betting then was obviously... It got hold of me as well because I, back in the day, they used to put a football football coupon on and it was on pre-kick-off. And then if your bet went down, your bet went down. But all of a sudden then... The world appeared and Bet365 invented the in-play markets and for me then that was another avenue to go down where I could bet instead of put my bets on pre three o'clock on a Saturday I could still bet and run in as you, as you call it and if bets were going down I was still putting extra bets on ready for both uh, anytime goal scorer and ex-goal scorer do you mean and both teams to score last goal scorer so it was it just it, it changed the whole concept for me so i think i said for me like i said whether it's like addictive personality whatever you want to call it but i do i will say that once we're in discussions i think we should be looking at grading the, the products when we talk about gambling addiction and what's on out there for people i do think there should be a better system in place or some further research into the products themselves and get some proper research and data into which are classed as the more harmful i think like i said it's generally perceived that through again limited data that we're looking at casino style products have got a higher addiction rate than others but like you said but sports betting and bingo i mean there's women and there's lots of people that suffer with bingo bingo addiction and other styles uh your scratch cards through lottery so there are there are a lot of products out there which which have got addictive uh natures no it's a very interesting point regarding the scratch cards and, and, and the lotteries and i'd never associate lottery as an addictive form of betting but clearly there are you know in the stats it took me by surprise I, I live in the horse racing world so i'm a bit blinkered in terms of what goes off in other sects of gambling um but the, what, the ones i've spoken to have, have come to me to discuss gambling harm a lot of them seem to have a bit of an escapism a gambling takes them away from the the, pro- the problems of the life and the buzz from that the dopamine and the there's obviously fueling 
all this sort of just is it goes into one big melting pot and i'd like to point that out to some of our listeners that are a bit sort of one-sided and say things like well you should take more personal responsibility because i know after speaking to several gamblers that have suffered harm that it's not about personal responsibility it's just it's an it's a disorder it's like you will always be looking to gamble i mean it's like, it's like when you attended gamblers anonymous i've spoke to people that attended gamblers anonymous in the sort of 80s and 90s and you know the group was all about taking every single temptation away including taking money off you you weren't allowed to manage your own money you were allowed to taking yourself away from situations is that focusing gambling groups now i mean yeah i mean i just highlight as well i'm, I'm obviously a, 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 i've been a gambler's anonymous regular so i went start my recovery whilst people go through different avenues whether they try gam care or therapy whatever i started going to gamblers anonymous 16 years ago when i first sort of when my, my, my wife gave me and basically said to me you either deal with this now or you're gone type of thing so i started with 16 years ago just just before my eldest uh, son was born so i've been going in out of ga for a long time and again i've had my relapses during that time so i had other, other issues that i, I think was underlying which i've now dealt with but i think from the and i've sort of come across a lot of people with and like you said it's a little bit of this stigma around that it's uneducated and uh, low income sort of people who are unintelligent get affected i've come across a barrister a solicitor highly skilled highly trained highly educated individuals who have fallen foul of this so it's just it's i think we're now looking at a a better understanding of this is now a public health approach and we need to understand that gambling can affect anybody. Anybody can get affected by gambling harm. And again, with in terms of the scaling of, of understanding how bad your gambling is, it's it's again it's a tricky one. The the, the PGSI score is the is the kind of standard one that the, the professionals, mental healthcare professionals use. But I think when you when you're on the on the, on the top end of that scale, well, I try to say, say to people, especially when they reach out for support, and one of its flaws with GA is that it's all about taking personal responsibility. I think there's an element you have to. But what I try to say to people is that you are taking responsibility for your recovery, how you came to be harmed. There's lots of lots of factors in play. I mean, from t- terms of poor government regulation to the products to the industry, how they behave, how they target you there's varying factors in place to a poor poor regulator which we're probably going to so there's so what i say to people is you, you can never absolve, absolve yourself of blame i think when people start going down the route of going well i was harmed by the industry what i'd say for my last three or four years is that whilst i've been a ga member for so many years and i took i take i do take responsibility for my recovery what i will say is that over those years the gambling industry facilitated my addiction so rather than see me as a someone who's been harmed and they should be trying to support someone like me because they could see I'm an addict whether it was in shops or online they facilitated my addiction by free bets by VIP statuses and that kind of stuff because the level of spending was going so so all that has all that is a factor as well I mean I mean that's something we're going to touch on just later in the pod regarding bookmakers and the sort of underhand tactics in can I use the word rinsing certain gamblers that are at risk and Andrew I'm just going to come to you on the subject of what Nick mentioned which I, I thought was interesting Nick mentioned about grading certain products in assessment of risk that's quite a sensible solution is it not i think so i mean i was reading through the gambling related harm debate the westminster hall and i read through and there's you know there's quite a lot to agree with i mean certainly with the um, the online slots i think i think the industry is realizing that it cannot 
continue the way it has done. I think Betting and Gaming Council say they've taken action to slow things up. But it never felt right, certainly when the £2 FOBTI restrictions came in in the betting shop, that you could stand there on your mobile phone and you could be betting hundreds whilst the FOBTI is only taking £2. So it's, if anything, it's surprising it's taken this long to sort of bring that into line, really. But I certainly think online casinos strike me as more dangerous than betting at a race course or where there's gaps between how frequently you can put your bet on. So I think yeah, there, there's a very good case for grading. No, no, absolutely. Nick, I'm going to bring you back in. And we're going to touch on your point regarding bookmakers tactics really and a a story i've got for you is obviously i'll keep it anonymous but it's from a chap that basically got in trouble and they kept going back to him and saying if you deposit three thousand pounds we'll put five thousand in your online casino account and this is after he told his vip account managers that he wanted time off he wanted what he wanted he didn't want to do this for a while he'd had enough and these practices have been certainly going on probably more than a lot of people realise. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for a long time. I mean, the VIP statuses were happening in a different format in terms of when the online world came in. I got certain VIP status if you were on about free tickets and free days of the races because of my level of spend in the shops. So I used to get free tickets off the, off the bookie and that kind of stuff. There was obviously local independent bookmakers around quite a few years ago. So so this this kind of VIP status has been going on for jet, for donkey's years and then they've just adapted into the into the online world where if you are spending heavy amounts of money, which again, there's no source of wealth check and or anti money money laundering or checks on on these kind of people, then you're getting thrown all sorts at you. And and the fact that these people are then going to you and saying that 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 case you just said there, which is all too common, and this is where you see the rate of suicide going up because. I hope I hope that, that that person you just mentioned is still still here to be able to have that conversation. Cause yes, I, a, I speak to him. Yeah, I speak to him every week. So yeah, yeah. because yeah, because in some formats, people like that, unfortunately, who are getting groomed just, just because they are admitting that they they want to break, which means they are having either financial problems or mental health problems or whatever whatever's going on, and they're asking for a break and then getting bombarded with this VIP manager who's enticing them back in. For me, I'll go as far as to say, in cases like that these people should be held criminally charged. If these kind of cases are investigated properly and something and somebody harms themselves, and it does happen, unfortunately, and it has gone on, you look at all the cases of people, uh, lots of suicide-related cases, there's there's historical evidence to show that these people have been, have got VIP managers, uh, have been groomed, things like that. Then there should be criminal charges brought against, against the operator or the VIP manager. Simple as that, because they pushed them over the edge. This is where we say we talk about accountability for the harms that can, there needs to be criminal prosecutions as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, well, that's, that's, that's certainly your point. Coming on now to if you were in charge, Nick, if you were in charge of everything of the review and we'll go through different aspects of what's likely to come under review. So we'll start with bookmaker advertising. What ground rules would you have for bookmaker advertising on gambling? I mean, like I said, I'm talking with my campaigning hat on you now. So, I, as you know, I'm a, well, I'm, I'm an active campaign. I look back to when pre-2005, before the uh, the Blair Labour government liberalised advertising. I just think that best case scenario, what I will say is that I'm very much a realist. Whilst I accept that 
doing the, the white paper and the GAMLAT review, there's going to be some things that we have to accept from our side that want to release gambling harms that we're going to have to make some concessions. We're not going to get everything across, across that we want. We have to, you can't just get everything you want in this, and that's not the way the world works. But just in terms of the reference to advertising, I just think that we're looking at, I go back to pre-2007, I think, would be, would be well, 2005 Act would be the way to go. I mean, certain concessions, maybe around the, like I said, the horse race industry, where they can have some advertising of, of, of their sport and things like that. But the levels we got now are highly, highly uh, problematic in terms of the amount of exposure that everybody in society, from children to adults that get in through social media, through TV, through radio, through football. So for me, I would... Yeah, in an ideal world, if I was being idealistic, I'd say ban it all. But re being a realist, I would say to go back to pre-2005 rules on advertising. Okay, Nick. Andrew, I'll come to you on advertising. If you were heading the review of the white paper, what would you do regarding advertising? I mean, personally, I've always been a bit indifferent to the advertising. To be honest, there's so much of it, it just becomes wallpaper. I think I'd be inclined to the adverts which sort of try to provoke you into bets. I think there's probably not that much of a case for them. Ray Winston and, and that sort of thing. Certainly around horse racing, sounds like Nick sort of agrees with that. I mean, you have, if bookmakers can't advertise around horse racing, then you know, the, the sport's in, in big trouble. So I think there's a recognition that that's, you can't do too much with that. Well the sponsors i say i'm i'm not convinced there's a huge link between sort of the the mass advertising and whether that's contributing to, to gambling problems with i say if it's just the brand you walk past it in high street so i'd be fairly indifferent but I'm, i say I, th I think of everything of all of the measures which are being looked at i don't think that this will make a huge difference to gambling harms Sort of, sort of, sort of on, on a brand sort of level. Can I just cut in here? Yeah. I kind, of, I kind of was thinking not along those kind of lines, but my my mindset changed, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't prejudge this just because of one case, but just to give you a highlight, I was, I was on until recently on the on the board of the Swan City Sports Trust, and I was obviously Swansea City is my football club, I'm local there, and I've been working with the club for a couple of years to talk about this, and obviously they've taken the gambling advertising off the shirts and that kind of stuff. And I've been trying to encourage them to take that next step further in terms of ending gambling advertising within the club as, as a whole, as clubs like Bolton have done and things like that. I had a case where over Christmas I had three, three, three individual people, all, all young laggards actually, contact me over Christmas and they'd seen the stuff I'd done with the Kagato and they knew I was local and they, and they were local, local boys in Swansea actually. And it happened to be over Christmas. And one of them sadly was under the age of 18. And he started gambling at 16 years of age. And was unfortunately, I would say he's from an affluent family. So he's middle class. His dad's got a very good job. Um, and obviously, I can't talk name names or things. I've got particular anonymity and, and whatever. But I made the club aware of this. But he got into gambling and was a season ticket holder with his dad and his grandfather. And got into gambling through actually through seeing advertising at the ground type of thing. Had a bit of a break from it. Uh, because he got caught up with his dad because he's using his dad's account and when he had his relapse he stopped gambling for four months his dad caught up with him sorted everything out and covered everything up from pretty pretty much and then when he fell back into the gambling 
it was off the back of going to a whole match and seeing the gambling advertising on the whole in. So I think I think we need to acknowledge that whilst like you said, I can see what uh, Andrew's point is, is that sometimes you can you can ignore all that if if you get engrossed into the match type of thing and join the match. Sometimes you do get some people do generally forget what's going around the holdings, but there are people out there. And I don't think we should be putting temptation in kids' ways who are going there match by match on season tickets every week, week in, week out, just seeing the constant. I mean, because I said I'm just using Swansea as an analogy here, that that 80% of their gamble, of their advertising, whether it's the electric holdings or whether it's the static ones, there's a lot of gambling advertising still there. So it changed my mindset. I challenged the club on it, and they basically said because of the economics of it at the moment, they couldn't do anything. So I, I do think there's there is evidence. Well, we don't see a lot of it, but highly in a story where someone has been harmed as a youngster. Yeah, I think it's a valid point, Nick, because any form of advertising, whether you're advertising fast food or drink, anything, is going to have an effect on society. And and where I see it is that kids really need a bit more protection, I think, on this, because if it's constantly being being fed to you in advertisements around the boards all the time, it's on the shirts. Obviously, you buy football kits and the gambling logo, I believe, not on kids' shirts. Am I right for football teams? I don't think the gambling logo it's, it's is on the shirts. Certainly not at, not at Derby. Yeah, I don't, yeah I, I don't I'm, think. I'm pretty certain that if the football club is sponsored by a gambling firm, then it doesn't. And you can ask for minus. shirts. You can ask for shirts without the sponsor on, apparently. Yeah, you could. I, well, I know West Ham do that. Yeah, yeah. It's actually it is illegal for them to have them on the shirts for kids. But like I said, some kids these days, I said, I quite quite big these days, isn't it? I've seen 14-year-old kids who are in adult-sized shirts, so they go into the club oh, shop yeah. and buy in. So it does happen, but. The law states that under 16s are not allowed to have gammon advertising on their shirts. So is it 16 or 18? I'm 100. But but like I said, as Andrew said, Swansea so do the same. You can you, when we when we had a gammon sponsor, you could have gone in and ordered the shop and not uh, and not had or online and and had the sponsor taken off. So I think we've got. I'm not say we all agree totally on this, but there is some sympathy, especially and I, and I speak to a lot of full-time gamblers like myself that are quite sympathetic to, to this. Kids really should be going to a football match, not have have gambling shoved down the throat. I totally agree. You know, that that's something that, that, that I think should be looked at. We move on to uh, free bets, Nick. Now, obviously, anybody that's online that probably knows Annie Ashton and things like that in the sad case with her lay husband, she believes that, it was the free bet offers that basically led to his demise. What's your thought? What would you do on the free bet side of things, Nick? Yeah, I'd, I'd ban, I'd ban them. I think just like said, just use your case of the, of the of the guy you just said, but there that he's been, well, he's been offered five grand or whatever it is. It's just that enticement to keep to keep on gambling type of thing. Do you mean if people want to go and have a bet, then go and have a bet. Do you mean with their own money, whatever? But if you are constantly being bombarded with offers week in week out to keep you in that mindset to keep you gambling the psychology of it all I mean that, that that's what that's what it is they they want to keep you in that moment and they don't want you to have a break because when you have a break you kind of you start realizing maybe you're just acknowledging you're gambling too much you spend too much time gambling maybe you're recognizing the, that there's other issues going on so once you're in that bubble of constantly gambling day in day out and offers to come in thick thick and fast and when you're a high level spender or whatever you're going to be spending it's the, it's they're keeping you in that moment and i f- for me with annie's with annie's husband with luke with jack ritchie as you know like it's they they lots of the people who have who've lost their lives have lost their lives because they are being enticed back into it so for me 
I'd sadly, I'd, 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 I'd ban it all. Yeah, I mean, in the case of Jack, I, I believe he was in, in Asia at the time, and obviously, I'd, I, am I right? I, Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I have, I only read snippets, so I don't have the information to hand. But was he betting out in Asia with Asian bookmakers? Just, just to clarify that it was, it wasn't UK operators he was betting with, or was it? No, I think he was UK. I think it was UK. But I mean, I said he was he was in Vietnam at the time, so I think it was because I'm not too sure if it's illegal to gamble over there. So yeah, I think he wasn't. I don't think he was gambling with Asian markets. I think he was getting offers from Kia. I I, right. I, I think yeah. So it's um, and and as others, like you said, I I speak and I've spoken about at these rallies and and these things. I've spoken to loads of families who gamble lives. There's there's loads out there that, that have got the same thing, and most of the parents of these youngsters who have taken their own lives. When they've gone back through the their batting patterns and and find what's going on, lots of these people have been enticed back in. They've been working off free bets, somewhere coming up to the conclusion of of their taking them taking their own lives. Andrew, would you care to counter this re free bets, the disappearance of free bets? Are you are you championing that? I mean, I certainly think when an account has been inactive for a while, you should really be doing some sort of survey about well, why why is it rather than sort of trying to entice people back in with three bets i think that's certainly dubious practice probably needs to be a bit of nuance on it i mean not that i've had an account with them for some time but i know three you know bet three six five do their three bets if a horse wins in a itv race and that sort of thing i'm not sure that does a huge amount of harm and if you run an account i think i think they do give you sort of a tenor sort of for, for loyalty now and again so i think a little bit of nuance on it but you know going around looking at accounts which have obviously lost a lot of money offering them free bets to entice them back in without finding out why they've stopped betting that's absolutely indefensible no i'm absolutely in your camp there i do think as i said that's the bit that's let the bookmakers down where like you said why would you go after a dormant account why don't you offer entice someone a free bet for maybe customer loyalty it's quite easy on their software to know a, a, a customer that's probably not out of hand betting sensibly or bets regularly with them on the big races or, or the big football matches or whatever enjoys the game why not reward like you said those I, that's where i wouldn't like to see the end of free bets i do, I do think that for the positive side of gambling that's like any shop isn't it you get marks and spark the vouchers the money off when you you know if you've got the app and, and things like that and I, th- I think that's it's just rewarding loyalty for, for going back to the store and like you say andrew i think it's the way that it's done that is the key here so i think i think both of you make very good points on that but but yeah i wouldn't like to see that that those disappear just just for genuine punters really that obviously enjoy the compliment of the service so to speak the other thing to add um, into this is the when you look at the T's and C's of the free bets, I mean, it's, I mean, you've got to be a qualified bloody mathematician these days to understand what free bets exactly mean in terms of <laughs> how do you get the return back on the free bet. So it's kind of, it's such a manipulation kind of thing is that you get this free bet, but you have to bet this, 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 and this before you can get get the return back and that, whatever. So you have to bet over these certain odds. So there's so many complications yeah. to these free bets and it's the way they do it, the manner they do it, it's the, the tactics that they use in terms of why they do it. So that's the reason why I think if it was just a straight a new customer gets 10 pound for opening a free bet and if you can bet that 10 pound and get return this straight away then the bookie has to take a loss then fair enough but it's such a manipulative kind of uh, sector of it 
Yeah. Before we go on to the meaty part of the show, which is the solution uh, to all this, which well, I rub my hands at this. I love things like that. I love solutions. I love trying to solve problems. Anything else that you would want to see brought in, Nick? Apart, we'll not go on to affordability. We'll, we'll touch on affordability and SCV in a minute. But anything other than that that you would like to see like brought in? Well, on the standard things, given the fact that we're just to be discussing industry behaviours and how they've been going, is obviously affordability is one thing which we'll go on to, but obviously the, is the use of the ombudsman. So, I mean, I think we need an independent ombudsman where if you've got a huge gambling addiction, I've always said to you, trying to reclaim money is just one is one way of trying to deal with it. But I think if industry is believing the way they're doing and they're breaking the law, in all factions of what they're doing, whether they're big in LCCPs or whatever it's going to be, then there should be an ombudsman in place. So if you're, like I said, we'll go probably going to it now, there's so many people at the moment getting winning bets restricted. So they've been betting regularly and all of a sudden they might might, might pick up a win and they, and they get an email from the operator saying, we're now restricting your account, we want to see pay slips and we want to see this and we want to see that, just because they're trying to avoid paying out. That should yeah. be in the hands of an ombudsman. Somebody should be going to an ombudsman going, this is what's happened, this is what they've done, deal with it. So, For sure. I mean, I mean, Nick, Nick, isn't it like the foxes are in charge of the hen house here and the, the rats are in charge of the cheese larder? I'm quite surprised, actually, at the GC. They're doing the phase two trial of, of SCV. And obviously the bookmakers are still in charge of the, the triggers and parameters. I mean, I'm, I am quite astonished at that. And I do hope that the government will look at this. Andrew, coming to you on this, are you surprised that the bookmakers are still in charge of all this? Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, obviously we had a chat with the, the Gambling Commission last week and it seems a rather strange situation where they're setting rules, certainly on sort of anti-money laundering and, and that sort of thing, but they have no role in, in the disputes around it. And yeah, we, we've seen numerous stories pop up on Twitter about people having difficulty getting, getting their money out and it feels like there's no one who's really championing them. So I think there probably will be an ombudsman. How that works, we'll have to see. I mean, it's, it is no silver bullet and you do really have to actually get in the right person and people to take to take that role on is uh, is not easy. But um, I think that's the way it's going because I say that the GC only seems to be doing half a job and punters are, are abandoned, essentially. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the way it's going. Look, I mean, it's being a regulator of an industry with this sort of levels of change is never going to be easy. But uh, the one thing that does disappoint me is obviously that, that the bookmakers are still in charge of, of all this at this moment. But I'm, try- I'm trying to play devil's advocate and I'm trying to come from all sides because if bookmakers are listening to this pod, they'll be turning it off by now. And um, <laughs> But I'm just saying it, the GC state here in their papers that came out in December, we are concerned licensees are creating complex and convoluted matrices and mappings with their affordability framework to place customers into trigger groups well over the gross earnings stated uh, before disposable income is factored in. Of more concern, these trigger groups are set with without any sort of customer interaction to influence their true affordability determination. Operators must interact with customers early on to set adequate informed affordability triggers to protect customers from gambling-related harm. Failure to do so could render the operator non-compliant. Now, the thing I've got with this is there are no figures mentioned. There are no 
how as a, if I was an operator now and I read I read those rules or, or or that evidence as to what I'd got to do as an operator, I'd be pardon my French, but I'd be running shit scared that I'm going to get shit loads of fines for not enacting on that rule because apparently I've got the triggers wrong and I felt that this for the, according to my software that, that, that I use to to check whether this punter may be at risk. I've not picked it up and and, and and I risk a fine. From their point of the bookmaker's point of view, they're coming, they're saying, look, this isn't this isn't cricket. We, you know, we we're trying, we're trying our best here, but you're asking us to become financial analysts, doctors, you know, physicians. All we want to do really is take a bet. And that is where I would side with the bookmakers on on, on one thing. It must be a tremendously difficult task to ascertain or even identify gamblers at risk of harm. And the reason I say this, because gamblers at at risk of harm will very rarely declare they're at risk because they want to continue to bet. So I would say it's very difficult to to identify someone. And, And of course, now we're at the stage where we've got SCV. So, Nick, I'll come back to you. What do you make of, of the Gambling Commission with those rather vague sort of uh, statements regarding what bookmakers should adhere to? Well, I will go out on a limb and say that a lot of the people within the lived experience community or the people who are kind of campaigning will actually say that currently the, the Gambling Commission isn't fit for purpose. I mean, it's been highlighted that I'd spoke to Andrew Rhodes, who was the CEO there, who was actually, again, from my neck of the woods. And when we met him on the on the Carga bus tour, it was stipulated before we even got there that there was going to be no discussions. He wasn't disclosing any information or having any debates about advertising and what we were there for. So, But what he did disclose, which I thought was quite alarming, was the fact that, it, that this industry are 800 times bigger than the, oper- than the, than the regulator, which makes it seem impossible to regulate because for me when this we go back to what one of the same things we should maybe implement is is that we should be reducing this amount of licensees in this country i think if if the government commission overstretched the levels that they're in why have we got over two and a half thousand licenses or whatever it is between the affiliates and the white labels we just need to slimline this industry down to make it far easier for to get a, a better functioning gambling commission to oversee the, the operators themselves. Going on what you said there, I, I do recognise that the operators might find it difficult to pinpoint uh, some someone who's suffering harm because sometimes you can't really measure harm just just from spend because the people who are the lower end who are living on benefits who maybe not be spending copious amounts of money but are spending a lot of time gambling then they are as much at risk of harm as someone who's a high spender. So you can't measure harm by spend. So that I think it's one of the important things to factor in. But this big commodity we keep talking about here, which keeps coming up, and it's something that the industry is sitting on, and the and the, and the, and the government should be hauling off them is data. It's the it's the golden nugget, and it's something that makes the world go round. And the gambling industry and the operators have copious amounts of data on individuals has highlighted by the Skybet and stuff that came out through the leak labs um, a few months ago, highlighting the companies that you use, third parties that you use. They monitor you do yourself, monitor people with counts to an inch of their life. So it's kind of, we've got to get hold of this data, I think, in some ways and get it overseen by uh, again, we keep using the word independence. I mean, like I said, we, all these all these dynamics and all this stuff we're talking about here is there's no golden nugget or simple solution to this, but the, the system isn't for purpose at the moment and we need new oversight 
when we talk about who should be in charge of everything in terms of a statutory levy, that kind of stuff, you've got the Department of Health and that kind of stuff. I think I don't think this should be left to just the DCMS in charge of this because they've proved to be failing and they oversee the Gambling Commission who are failing. You just look at the football index farce. I mean, there, there should be criminal investigation into that and a public inquiry into this because the, how the Gambling Commission issued a license for that Ponzi scheme is unbelievable and and the livelihoods and a lot of money that, that's been lost on that football index is is criminal. It's horrendous. Yeah, there's plenty there that actually you surprised me because I was agreeing. I'm thinking <laughs> Nick's talking plenty of sense. With regards to the data, this extremely valuable data. I mean, for example, I'll, I'll give you my instance. Obviously, I do it for a living. I'm full time. And I was asked back in May of last year to provide evidence because I'd made more deposits and withdrawals than what I'd probably normally do, I admit, at that time. So I was very, very shocked to see my account suspended and asked to provide dense affordability checks, which I, I actually did because I, I, need, I, I need it to, this is what I do, this is how I feed my family, this, this is what I do. I, I did send them in and, and, I, and I passed. But you imagine that data they've got of mine. It's incredible. They've got share documents. Incredible. The amount of data that was sent, it's scary. And I'm reading about it. These third-party companies that these operators are using have rights to use this data for whatever they see fit for. You, mm. you, you can't do anything about it. It's, it's an absolute scandal that this is allowed to happen because, as we know, you don't have to provide data like that, well, that are provided for a mortgage, never mind um, to have a bet. So that's where I, I was very upset last year, obviously. This is where I came involved in the situation a lot more because obviously I'm trying to look at it from all sides as well because I'm thinking, why, why are these measures coming in? And then I looked at the SCV, I was very disappointed with the SCV as a solution because obviously, again, it's going to require an ombudsman to come in and take that data from you to to check to prevent to obviously potentially stop gambling harm. I get the reasoning. I don't get the solution because, like I've pointed out in my articles, the single customer wallet solves it all. It's a one-off wallet that, say, an independent payment provider users, Skrill, NetTeller, there's lots of companies out there that do it. You can only have one wallet, only have one gambling wallet. The limits are predetermined up to a certain amount. That could be discussed, whatever that amount is. And then it, we're talking about gambling prevention here at source. Not after the event. The SCV, all it will do, it will red flag someone after they've made a mess. That's my point. SCV is reactionary. It doesn't prevent. Now, I'm sounding draconian in all digital programmable currency, but the SCW can be expanded to shops and racecourses by simply having the wallet payment card for shops that links to that wallet. So when you go into a shop and you ask for a bet, you present your card to put in the, the whatever you want to do with it. It doesn't matter after that. You've got an allowance and that's that. And then you go to a racecourse, you go to a cashier like you would in a casino and you get chips. And again, that comes off your wallet. If you put your chip, if you've won on the day, your chips go back in your wallet. You don't need any invasive bank checks. It's a simple KYC to, to prove that you've it's your bank account, it's you're a passport holder, blah, blah, blah. The anti-money laundering is on its source. The relationship with the bookmaker becomes, I would like a bet at this price. Would you accept that bet? Bookmakers don't have to become doctors, analysts. They don't get their hands on data that, you know, that's unnecessary. They just go back to the old days. That's the price. 
here's the money, would you like to accept the bet? If the bookmaker says no, it goes straight back into your wallet, you take your money back and you bet with someone else like consumer choice. And then we've, we've got gambling support groups after this. That could be funded by a levy. Gambling support groups provide support to people, obviously, that still fall foul by whatever means. And I think that is by far and away the best solution. So, Nick, I'm coming straight back to you to counter that. I say counter it. I mean, like I said, I, I, I just think, again, the whole setup, the dynamics of all, I mean, it's two, two points here. I mean, single customer view, single customer wallet. I mean, there's not a lot of variations. I, I understand what you're saying about it. For us as well, we're talking about the people who are trying to call us the gambling lobbyists who are going to call us. We are all about prevention. It's all about harm reduction. So whatever we think, whatever works is going. The first thing alarming for us, should be all of us, is, is the fact that the SCV is it has been handed from the GCO to the BGC. So again, we keep talking about the industry who have controlled the narrative and controlled research, education, treatment, they cover, they control everything and they've been left in charge of this again. So the first flaw in this whole process with the SCV is the fact it's been given to the BGC to do. So there's, it's it's going to fail from the start. So, so that's, that's, that's the first flaw. The dynamics and how it's operated for either one, whether it's SCV, I think fundamentally differentiate between who oversees this? Whatever happens, I just don't think that whichever way we go down with this SCV or SCW, and it seems to be, like I said, we have this debate here now. We, we none of us are policymakers. I've got, I'm in charge of anything. It seems to be that the debate is going down the SCV route. I'm not saying I don't agree with the SCW because I, I, I think in principle it sounds really good actually. But it looks as if the decision makers in this are going down the SCV route, hence why it's already in phase two uh, with with the BGC. So I think it's flawed from the start with that. For me, it's just about who oversees all this, because I, I think and ultimately, I just don't think we can trust the operators enough to be in charge of, of, of overseeing it. For me, looking back at my history with gambling is that what you don't want to be doing is people gambling heavy with one operator and having an account and then all of a sudden getting the account restricted and you're just able to just open up another bank, another account and just do exactly the same with another operator. I think we need to try and stop that at whatever, whichever way yeah. it works. So well, that that needs to happen. So so in principle, I don't actually disagree with with, with the one SCW. I just, I'm just, from what I can believe, what led to believe the SCV is, is in motion and it's looking to go that way. Do I agree with it? Not really, in, in many ways, no. just be, just because it's, be, it's in the hands of the wrong people. Well, yeah, exactly. I don't think it's all, like I say, it's reactionary rather than preventary. And that's where, if we're coming from the side of, of, of gamblers with harm and helping that side. And by the way, this is where, uh, me on the other side, I'm willing to compromise on a system like this, where perhaps there's somewhere I can go to to prove that I am a professional and I'm allowed to play normally, but I'm willing to compromise and, and I, I see that there's need for change. But the SCV does disappoint me because... I know that it's not good enough, and I, I do think there's gonna it's gonna create more mess down the line. Again, with the SCV, there's nothing to probably stop at the moment, from what I can see. You could deposit literally six or seven times simultaneously over seven different sites before the red flag comes. But that could be too late. That could be literally the money's in, the bet in, the, whatever. And then you've then you've got the problem of, well, if that person's been allowed to do this. That person then might come from a, 
a legal check. You've let me bet too much. Uh, that's where the SCV doesn't work, and, it, and it's requiring lots of data, lots of invasive data, looking into people's private bank account. I'm not really keen on that idea at all. Andrew, coming to you on this, how do you see what me and Nick have just been talking about? Well, with the SCW, I mean, we've raised that with both the BCG and uh, no BGC and the Gambling Commission and both came back with it, it would be useful for no customer and that sort of thing, but it would create a database of gamblers. And that seems to be the predominant reason why they, they seem to be anti that. So you, know, you, you can see it in theory, whether that's enough to for them to go down that route. I say don't think they're going to do that just yet with the scv pointed out you know how will there will there be safeguards against customers that one bookmaker might want to get rid of because they're winners or something like that and that they can alert all the other bookmakers many of whom might be in the same uh, in the same company of course apparently that won't be allowed to happen and they're <laughs> looking at they're looking at sort of frequency of play and abnormal deposits, frequency of deposits and that sort of thing. I don't know how confident they are that it's going to work. I suppose a proof that that's going to be in the pudding. And it's also what, you know, if you, if you do get caught up, if you're just on a bad run, what right of appeal have you got if you are just, you know, a genuine punter? So I think there's, there's quite a few flaws in that. Well, I say but the proof will be in the pudding and you know, the trials will be rolling out soon. So we'll see. We'll see what comes out of that. But I mean, overall, there's a feeling over the last 20, 25 years that the bookmakers have been playing the man rather than the ball most of the time. And we're going to have to see if they can get away from that, because we've always said they should be farmers rather than hunters. They might get a quick profit from destroying, certain, you know, destroying someone by allowing them to bet far too much. But that's it, and it would surely be better, and you'd hope they'd recognise this, if they were to allow punters sort of, you'd hope that they win, but, you know, lose over a longer time period rather than these inducements to lose all the money all at once. So we'll see, yeah. we'll see which way the industry goes. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been a grand discussion between you two. I'm just going to finish it off by saying I'm always right. SCW is the way forward. Otherwise, I would probably, I don't know what I'd do. If it, SCV is not a solution. It will create a bigger mess. But The other but, thing to add in, they said, in the all to be is what, what we should everybody should looking to do is take everything away from the industry themselves the industry have been historically proven to be non-trustworthy and the less they are in control of the better so whichever way you work it it's, it's important to highlight there the reason why the scw wouldn't work is because they they didn't have to share data that that's the thing isn't it you mean they whilst they've got they've set up the bgc to lobby for them in, in parliament and got like Sadugo in charge they're still fierce fierce rivals and whilst there's a lot of operators who've come who've combined into one and they're multinational massive corporations now but ultimately they're still fierce rivals and they want a lion's share of the market so if they've got to start sharing data with it whether it's with the regulator or the government they're not going to want to do it that's, that's the other thing to highlight as well perfectly put and i think a suitable time to end so i hope listeners you've enjoyed that because it's a little different and it's important to take uh, other views in this on board as i've done from the start and that's why i decided to write three papers on it and try and come up with a better solution than for me that want than what's on the table but hopefully it will all resolve itself thank you nick for joining us tonight it's been a pleasure thank uh, you Andrew, same for you. Thanks for joining us. And uh, thank you. And uh, I hope everyone uh, enjoyed this pod. That's all from us. Bye for now.